All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will jump right into this. On March 27th, 2023, in the Nashville community, a horrific event took place. A shooter by the name of Audrey Hale walked into an elementary school and slaughtered six individuals. I covered this extensively, obviously, because I am a part of the Nashville community. And we have been left with really no answers and just a lot of lingering questions. A lot of things were strange that day. First and foremost, it is unusual for there to ever be a female mass shooter. And we were given no information, not from police officers, uh, nothing came out pertaining to how this could have possibly taken place. And so yesterday, there was a major break when Louder with Crowder, the team over at Louder and Crowder, said that they had obtained three pages from Audrey Hale's manifesto. I said yesterday, despite being given and provided this information, having you know been seeing it in the same way that you all saw it, but I wanted to wait to report on the release pages because while it was indeed a major break, credit where credit is due, I felt that the documents were incomplete and did not necessarily paint an accurate picture of what transpired, given the amount of evidence that we knew was collected in the aftermath of the horrific shooting. And it paid to wait because I was then contacted by another source who agreed and who had seen many more of the documents which were collected. So that's what we'll be reporting on exclusively today a source that has provided me with more information pertaining to the motive of Audrey Hale. That's what's coming up on Candace Owens. All right, so yesterday morning when we were prepping for the show, we obviously heard the news via Twitter like everybody else had that Steven Crowder, the Louder with Crowder team, had obtained some exclusive documents pertaining to the shooting, which took place at the Covenant School here in Nashville. This was obviously a very big story, a very big break, and I was keen to see what he would present, credit where credit is due. I mean, we have all been grasping at straws over here, trying to understand what took place in this community, but more importantly, trying to understand why this shooting was being treated differently than any other shooting that we've had in America. We're not being told anything about the manifesto. We're not being told anything about the individual. People clammed up. Lawsuits were filed. Essentially, they did not want the public to know. They said the public had no right to know, which is even more bizarre. And so, like I said earlier, credit where credit is due, that they got their hands on this. But to me, since I wasn't first, it didn't seem necessary for me to then present the information because it was already out there, and also because I just had this feeling that we were maybe missing the bigger picture. So we will at first go back, and we will report what the Louder with Crowder team exclusively obtained. Uh, It was three pages of Audrey Hale's notebook. I never doubted the authenticity of the notebook, obviously, because who would who would present fake note uh, a fake notebook and think that that was going to be good for their career? Um, It was bizarre to me, the writings, and it talked about essentially how proud Audrey Hale was that today was the big day. So I will just read directly from the notebook. Again, this was sourced from the Louder with Crowder team. The notebook says today is the day. The day has finally come. I can't believe it's here. I don't know how I was able to get this far, but here I am. I'm a little nervous, but excited. I've been excited for the past two weeks. There were several times that I could have been caught, especially back in the summer of 2021. 
that implies that Audrey Hale had been planning the shooting for some time and really was just working up the courage uh, to commit this atrocity. It goes on, it says, none of that matters now. I'm almost an hour and seven minutes away. I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm ready. I hope my victims aren't. It's incredibly disturbing. My only fear is if anything goes wrong, I'll do my best to prevent any sort, I think that's supposed to say, anything of the sort, rather. God, let my wrath take over my anxiety. It might be 10 minutes tops. It might be three to seven. It's going to go quick. I hope I have a high death count. Ready to die. Ha ha. Just unbelievably disturbing. You also see in these exclusive pages that Audrey had worked out a timeline of what it was going to look like on the day of death. The schedule reads 6.30 a.m. It looks like the word desired. I don't know what that means. 7 a.m. Get dressed. 9 a.m. Eat breakfast at home. Home is encircled in a heart shape. 9.30 a.m. Pack up special belongings. 9.50 a.m. Test the knife core glass breaker. Dad's old cars in parentheses. At 10 a.m. Leave for the Royal Range. At 10.20 a.m., gear up and set up guns in the trunk. Assemble and get out the rest with mags inside. 11.20 a.m., final videotape. Some other ramblings that are in this notebook, which is dated about a month before the shooting back in February. Kill those kids, underline, those crackers, going to private fancy schools with those fancy khakis and sports backpacks with their mommies, daddies, Mustangs, and convertibles. F you, little shit. I wish to shoot you. Weak ass Ds with your mop yellow hair. Kill all you little crackers. Bunch of little fat with your white privileges. F*** you, fat uh, Apologize, obviously, for the language, but I think it's important for you guys to hear it. And if, again, if you haven't seen it, this is exclusive reporting that was done by Lada with Crowder. So as again... As I've said, it was really great work, uh, but the corresponding conversation that was had was people saying that this was a person that was just upset with privilege, upset with white people, and committed this mass atrocity, and that didn't feel enough for me. So I wanted to wait because what I really thought was, if Steven Crowder has reported on this, it will make other people feel safe to come out with more information. And we know that there's going to be plenty of people in this community that have information and are keeping it close to their chest for a variety of reasons, probably likely fear being the number one reason. And I'm glad I waited because I was then contacted. And I want to be very careful in everything that I'm going to convey to you next. It's very important, first and foremost, that you understand uh, this is a very well-placed source. is a source that I trust, um, and I think that this person uh, is doing something that is very brave in just coming forward and talking about this case in general. Obviously, this individual is similarly disturbed by the lack of information that has been given to the public, and so I want to commend them on their bravery, but also caution you to understand that as we discuss what is allegedly in uh, Audrey Hale's other writings, other manifestos, to a- appreciate the fact that Audrey Hale is a psychopath, right? So we always must take what a psychopath is saying with a grain of salt, and it's very difficult to discern what is true and what is false when you are looking inside of the mind of somebody who has the capacity to commit atrocities against children. I also want us to remember the names of the victims, because this is not about me, this is not about breaking a story, but this is about 
appreciating that people were taken from this world because of a, an insurmountable hatred in somebody's heart. And those individuals were Evelyn Dicus, Hallie Scruggs, William Kenny, Mike Hill, Catherine Kuntz, and Cynthia Peek. Now, I'm going to say allegedly a lot because it's important for you guys to also understand that I physically did not see these documents, but I trust the person who did physically see these documents or else I would not be reporting this to you. Now, the police collected a lot of inventory, a lot of property from Audrey Hale. I'm just going to remind you guys, this is just a few pages of some of the stuff that they collected, seven journals, one journal. Um, You see, I'm showing you this list of the inventory seized, 11 home videos, bags with Target empty ammo, two journals, a suicide note, passwords on sticky notes. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And again, that is what gave me pause in trying to understand what other information do they have. Amongst all of this inventory, what the source conveyed to me is that Audrey Hale claims to have been sexually assaulted in her youth when Audrey Hale was a child. Uh, And I think that that is a very important and a very relevant allegation. I obviously spend a lot of time on this show, on this podcast, talking about transgenderism. I have often talked about Walt Heyer, uh, who is a trans, formerly trans individual that I interviewed, who talked about how many people who are, quote unquote, transitioning, suffered some sort of a sexual abuse in their youth, uh, which leads them to this desire to rinse themselves of their identity entirely. What we have been able to confirm also throughout all the inventory that was gathered was that Audrey Hale had a fixation with her father. Without question, there seemed to be this fixation on her father and the hatred that Audrey felt for her youth was really predominantly transferred to the Covenant School. She felt that her youth, which was so privileged and obviously all the things that she hated and which have been clarified by what Steven Crowder released, you know, I'm speculating here, but perhaps this is the reason that she targeted this school. Uh, Apparently, while Audrey was dealing with some identity issues, Audrey Hale was at the Covenant School And she placed a lot of the blame on her treatment uh, at the Covenant School while she was going through these issues, which could, again, point to some sort of a motive, but we can't confirm that. I am just telling you the information that was given to me. So to reiterate, what is being alleged here is that Audrey Hale harbored anger and resentment toward this particular school, which she did attend in her youth, uh, partially because she felt that they were not embracing her identity issues in the correct manner. That is what is being alleged here. So that gives us some sort of a plausible motive. And also to remember that when they went through Audrey Hale, Audrey Hale, the adult's bedroom, Audrey Hale, the adult's belongings, there was this obsession with childlike paraphernalia. There were a lot of stuffed animals. I mean, this is it's really creepy to consider an adult that is collecting stuffed animals, but obviously there was some sort of a stunted growth some sort of a stunted development. And it can be assumed or it can be discussed rather uh, as to whether or not what contributed to that was a trauma in Audrey Hale's childhood. If this sexual abuse is in fact true, then it gives us room to better understand 
what could have led to this heinous crime, what could have led to so much hatred and this harboring of hatred toward children, children that she viewed as idyllic, children that she viewed as privileged, children that were very much like her. I tweeted earlier today that I have been told that two officers are about to be fired for the information that was given to Steven Crowder. I was told that the uh, one of the two officers um, accepted payment for the three journals that they released. I am not alleging that Steven Crowder is the person that paid them. I am just telling you that I have been told by the source that some payment took place. So maybe the officers, maybe there's a middleman, who knows, but that these two officers are going to lose their jobs over the release of this information, so you can discern from that what you will. My source also tells me that Audrey Hale recorded a video of herself and that that is within their possession. I don't think this is something that we can expect to be released. Again, I have not personally seen the video. I am just telling you guys exactly what I have heard about this. And it paints a picture, and it is a picture that we should talk about, you know. I, again, have been beating the drum, talking about transgenderism, talking about the issues implicit there, talking about the need for us to have access to when these horrific events take place. We should have access to exactly what pharmaceuticals these individuals were on. There's no question that we we should know what is in their medicine cabinet. We should know what doctors were treating them and how they were dealing with this because it seems that this individual had a fixation with children because of a trauma that potentially allegedly happened in her childhood. And if that is the case, then that spiraled into a deep-seated hatred for children and a deep-seated hatred for themselves, right? A deep Audrey hated herself. There's no question about that. You're, You're talking about someone who's using language in this notebook, I want to kill all you little crackers, you know, a bunch of little F words with your white privileges. There is almost a, a, a hatred of the way in which Audrey Hale grew up, right? And this is stuff that is not spoken about. It's not allowed to be spoken about. This is the sort of stuff where people tell you if somebody is having an identity issue, rather than address it, rather than having them speak to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you need to affirm them in that insanity. Again, I encourage people to watch the sit-down interview that I did with Walt Heyer as he spelled out his own molestation, his own sexual abuse in his childhood, which ultimately led him to procedures and surgery and living as a woman for over a decade of his life until he woke up and realized that what happened was there was a trauma that was being ignored, a a trauma that was never addressed because he was handed pharmaceuticals as opposed to being handed uh, a conversation and a further understanding of what happened to him in his youth. And so if all of this information, which I feel confident the information that I've gotten is valid, is true, This should open more conversations uh, about transgenderism, about what underpins transgenderism and why we are living in a society where people do not want to address the trauma of these individuals, what would lead somebody to doing something so drastic as to wanting to transform their identities. It is more crucial than ever that we have this conversation. I also want to add here that the Nashville police have responded to the release of the three journal entries from the Crowder team. Here is what they wrote. It reads, the following is a statement from Chief John Drake. 
I'm greatly disturbed by today's unauthorized release of three pages of writings from the Covenant shooter. The police department is extremely serious about the investigation to identify the person responsible. This action showed a total disregard for Covenant families, as well as the court system, which has control of the shooter's journals at the present time due to litigation filed earlier this year. It is now pending in Davidson County Chancery Court and the Tennessee Court of Appeals. We are not at liberty to release the journals until the courts rule. Our police department looks forward to the ultimate resolution of a litigation concerning the journals. Now, I have heard the argument. I've heard people saying, well, if the individuals don't want it released, then it shouldn't be released. I am sorry. When a psychopath walks into a school and commits murder against Christian children, it is not about what certain individuals want. It becomes necessary for the community at large to understand what happened, especially if you are a parent like I am in the community who is raising young children. We should have access to every single piece of information because these things require further conversation. And so without pointing the finger and pointing the blame on who did what and who said what and who released what, we deserve to see every single piece of evidence that they are holding. I am talking, I have four pages of inventory here of what they took and I want it all. That is how I feel as a parent. I want it all. I want to see everything. I want to understand evil. You do not fight evil by being too fearful to look it in the face, by pretending it doesn't exist, by pretending it's not happening. You have to stare it straight in the eye in order to understand, in order to begin to understand, in order to begin to understand how you can fight it, right? In order to begin to understand how you can even conquer the evil, you have to be able to look at it. So I am again calling for there to be a release of all documents pertaining to the life of Audrey Hale. That is what we deserve in the community. That is what we deserve in America because you didn't have to live in Nashville to be impacted by something this heinous and something this evil. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, now it's time for some topics du jour. All right, you guys. So I think right now the interview has just crossed over half a million views. I'm super proud of it. And so I just want to promote it again. It is really one of these interviews that I hope every single parent watches and decides when it's appropriate to introduce it uh, to children that might be going through schools and being told they can pick their genders and to state what their genders are. It becomes very important. I don't know at what age that happens. Apparently it's first grade or kindergarten these days, but it is very important for, I think, teenagers to have a real understanding of the harms of social media, how it is impacting the conversation. It was my sit-down interview with Brianna Ivey, and I'm going to show you a teaser of that now. Take a listen. What do you think in your mind made you think, maybe I'm not just gay, but maybe I'm trans? When did you first have that sort of a thought? Yeah, I was 12. I had no idea even what being transgender was until I saw it online and I saw it on TV. So what you're talking about is is culture and culture matters. All I wanted was a miracle. We turned to that gender clinic because we were desperate. We were vulnerable. Like I just didn't want to live anymore. They'll tell you, if you want to look good and be treated better, start now, start young. I discovered a surgeon from TikTok Even just a month, two months in, something was really wrong. Every single day, the pain was worse and the bleeding was worse. I would try and call the doctor. I would say, there's just no way that this is what it's supposed to be like. He sounds like an absolute monster. I want you to know that I am so sorry for what happened to you. 
everything that they had told us was a lie. How does it make you feel to know that there seems to be almost a conspiracy to stop this truthful narrative? I know I've already been threatened many times, me and my family. Even us having this conversation is a risk. It's a story that, that needs to be told. Without question, that was my favorite interview that I've ever conducted. And I think it's because Brianna was just so honest about everything, so honest about what he had lived through, so understanding that he was just a child. He was a child and he was taking advantage of an entire system that really just set him on a course to ruin his own life. But by the end of that, the conclusion that I hope that everyone who's watching this and responding to this interview is finding is that I don't, I don't believe that Brianna's life is over. I believe that it is very much just beginning. So I implore you, if you have not yet watched that interview, you can watch it over at dailywire.com. You can watch it on YouTube. Just type in Candace Owens and Brianna Ivey. You'll find it on our podcast page. Uh, we're talking about cultural issues today. We are talking about this moment. We are talking about parenting. We are we're really talking about children, right? What What is happening right now in American society with our children, the things that they are being exposed to? Well, I think it was last week I covered for you a rapper, a nine-year-old rapper, an illiterate rapper, literally cannot read, named Lil R.T. And so he recently covered his music video, which is up on YouTube. It's also, he's got an Instagram page. It's called 60 Miles. And in the lyrics, he's talking about women who he doesn't want to hang out with unless they're willing to suck his D. Yeah, he's nine years old again, so he hasn't even gone through puberty. These are the kinds of lyrics that were coming out. And we covered this piece because it's not funny. Um, it is. Uh, it speaks to the corrosion of our culture. It speaks to the corrosion of black culture, obviously a part of the bigger American picture. And people shouldn't find this sort of content to be funny. Well, it turns out that Lil RT, the nine-year-old rapper who cannot read but raps about sex, responded to me. I want to show you what Lil RT had to say. Take a listen. What do you want to say to her? <laughs> Why? What happened? Hey, I'm being myself. They all let me just talk to them like this. Bring it to uh to her restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. What? You were telling me about that food trash. <laughs> <laughs> so you say, you hear him say that uh, I need to be quiet because I'm all up in his silk. He's obviously being egged on by the adults, and that's really who I want to respond to because little RT is a child, and my heart breaks for him genuinely. I I see a child that could have so much potential, and yet he is surrounded by monsters people that know that they are not furthering his rap career. In fact, they are probably leading him down a path of, of harm, obviously, if he cannot even read at the age of nine years old. The future is not looking bright for him unless there is some sort of an extreme intervention in which there should be. You have people over at Child Protective Services that will show up at your house if you refuse the vitamin K shot for your infant at the hospital. And yet you have a little RT that's creating content on the internet talking about women performing sex acts on him, talking about running from the police, and there's no problem here. That's just what they expect for black Americans. They expect their prospects to be, well, 
let's return to the streets. You should always be on the streets. You should want to be a ball player, which is probably not going to happen statistically. You have virtually a 0% chance of being the next LeBron James. But if you pursue this path of music or you pursue this path of sports, maybe you end up like a little RT and hope that you're not dead by the time you're 20. And so they're egging him on there, and he's saying she's off my silk. I, I can't answer that because I don't know what it means. I don't care to know what it means. I'm not for the streets. I'm not all up in your silk. I'm, I'm paying attention to how your parents are harming you, which your underdeveloped brain obviously can't comprehend. But they comprehend what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Uh, whatever, they wrote some disclaimer there. He thinks I own a restaurant. I don't. They think it's funny to show that people are just jealous of him. We aren't. We are concerned for him because we should be concerned. Every person should be concerned when there is a young child who should have the their entire world before them, who instead is sitting on a couch responding as if he's in a rap battle with someone who is expressing concern for his life. Those adults don't care about him. That's the point. We are in a circumstance now in America where there are too many adults who don't care about their children, who care about clicks, who care about Facebook, who care about TikTok, who care about Instagram, and want to use their children to further their own desperate need for attention. This kid needs a book. This kid needs to learn how to read. This kid needs better parenting. What we need as a society, by the way, I want to be clear, is better parenting all around. So I am disturbed by this response. I don't find it funny. I don't find it cute. I don't. I think we need to stop telling parents that this sort of stuff is cute and liking it and thumbsing it up. We need to call them out for their abhorrent behavior. In my estimation, these parents are behaving as if they're younger than little RT. It's an embarrassment. All right, guys, let's jump into some of your comments. Actually, the comment that I wanted to read yesterday, we had someone who was pro, is pro-Israel, pardon me. Uh, his name is Ami Kozak. He's a wonderful comedian. And we just talked about just sort of the space that we are in right now where uh, Twitter just really furthers such extremes. And I think that what you're seeing is a radically extreme pro-Israel lobby that's running around calling everybody anti-Semitic that's actually hurting the pro-Israel lobby. There's been a collapse in support for Israel, which was something that Ami Kozak conceded. And then there was another person who similarly expressed his consent, I mean, expressed what Ami Kozak was saying about how sometimes when they watch my content, they just want to know why I'm not defending Israel, why I'm not defending Israel as a nation, or uh, why I'm not saying enough. And I thought her comment was really level-headed, so I wanted to read it on the show. Here's what she wrote on Twitter. She goes by Dr. O on Twitter, and she wrote this. What I think is so jarring for me, a longtime admirer of yours, is not exactly what you're saying, but how you say it. Trust me, I'm not soft, and I love how you put facts over feelings. This just hits a little different, and I do think there are times like now when changing our approach might be appropriate. I don't like people saying these things about you, but I don't think that they're really hearing the importance of your opinions on this issue. The reality is that I've never seen so many people come out in support of Palestine before. The Syrians did way more to destroy Palestinians than anyone else, and the world was largely silent. But they massacre 1,500 Jews, and it's the Jews that need to be destroyed, question mark. I feel like the Jews have every right to do what they're doing right now. I don't understand why people are supporting Hamas, a known terrorist organization. I don't want innocent people to die, but the types of concessions that Israel is being asked to make right now is egregious. I never heard anyone calling for any ceasefire as we ravaged in the Middle East after 9-11. Candice, I trust you and I respect your opinion. What am I missing? Such a great question. And again, very respectful and not something that you often see on Twitter where people are just racing to call each other pro-genocidal, to call each other you know, anti-Semitic. It's just tiresome. And I think that really is what you're missing. 
Um, and I hope that you were able to watch my conversation with Ami Kozak because it was really good and it was meaningful to just be able to dialogue in, in a space where people don't want to dialogue. They just want to yell and they just want to shout. But what we really talked about was how I really do believe that leading up to this moment, before, way before October 7th, uh, pro-Israel was already losing the crowd. And what I mean by that was there was a fatigue that has been setting in culturally in the West with claims of anti-Semitism. And that's why I wanted to talk to Ami Kozak about that. I actually pointed to him and I said, what about this statement is actually anti-Semitic? And he said, it's not. And yet people are facing smears and facing libels, people's jobs are being called, if they simply ask a question, if they ask a question about Israel's response, if they say, you know what, how many Palestinians being killed in response is too many Palestinians? They say, how dare you ask that question? You're anti-Semitic for even asking. They say, well, what if this leads to World War III? It doesn't matter if it leads to World War III. What, what matters now is that even at, uh, suggesting or thinking ahead is wrong and you're anti-Semitic. I felt this fatigue long before this. I have been covering it on the show. If, you're, if you are an ab listener to the show, I have been saying that the pro-Israel lobby was hurting the pro-Israel cause. And I think that we virtually saw a collapse overnight because something horrific did happen. People acknowledged that it was horrific. And I think that a lot of Jewish people looked around and said, where are our, our, our allies? And a lot of your allies were falsely accused of being anti-Semitic. And they didn't like the way that that felt. You can't punch someone in the face and then say, why won't you defend me? And I think, unfortunately, over the years, there and I have detailed those instances on the show many times, there have been too many people that have been punched in the face by the pro-Israel lobby, being told that it's not what you said, it's what you didn't say that makes you an anti-Semite. Threats, real threats. I had a rabbi that threatened to buy out an entire page in a newspaper and call me an anti-Semite because I didn't condemn what Kanye West said, what someone else said, not what I said, but I wouldn't condemn it. And they knew, I had said on the show a thousand times, Kanye is a friend of mine. I don't believe, it doesn't come easy to me. It might come easy to some people to betray your friends or to, to throw your friends under the bus when the public comes and they say that you must say this. It doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come easy to me. And I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Rather than assessing me as a human being, they thought, oh, I'm just going to threaten you. You're seeing the same circumstances why I'm standing up against what's happening on college campuses. You know, children signing a letter that you disagree with is one thing showing up at their private property with a bus and their faces on the bus and calling them anti-Semites, that's going to have some long-lasting trauma. You may have had the capacity to bring these children over to your side. You may have been able to say to them, you know, I disagree with your letter. And I, more than anything, disagree with the timing of your letter. You know, we're, we're still dealing with the aftermath of this. And the first thing you do is you sign a letter and you say, well, this Violence didn't happen in a vacuum, and actually it's, it's, it's Israel's fault that this happened. If you look over the last 75 years, maybe not the most tactful timing. Maybe you can help them understand that. But when you already say, I'm going to put your face on a bus and call you an anti-Semite, that's a very serious thing to call someone who's 18, 19, 20 years old. That's not going to turn them into a friend. It's not. They're going to be a permanent foe. And so I think that the support for Israel has happened very slowly. Uh, the drop in support for Israel, rather, has happened very slowly, and now it's happening very quickly. I think it's been—I noticed it really starting uh, to rev up, the pro-Israel lobby calling people anti-Semitic over, I would say, the last four years. And then we reached kind of a point of ridiculousness uh, last year when people like Jamie Foxx were being <laughs> called anti-Semitic for stating what happened in the Bible. It's just completely ridiculous. And so I think I wouldn't hold my breath for Kyrie Irving to speak out on behalf of Israel. I wouldn't hold my breath 
for Jamie Foxx to be the loudest voice in support of Israel right now. And there are so many others that are like this, including myself. You know, I've been wrongly smeared and libeled as anti-Semitic too many times. And and so I think what you hear is people that no longer want to engage in the conversation because no matter what they say, they are being accused of either being stupid, ill-informed, and that is just simply not how you make friends and influence people. As a perfect demonstration of exactly what I'm talking about, yesterday, as I said, we had that really great conversation with Jimmy and Ami where we talked about our, ex- our experiences, and I spoke to him about how one thing that I was confused about was when I went to Jerusalem myself, and I saw this anger and this angst between the Jews and the Muslims, and I was shown that these are the Muslim quarters, and we were talking about whether or not they are required to live there or whether or not they choose to live there. Very confusing if you're somebody who's you know walking through this and how it didn't give me the sense of freedom and collaboration between these people. And the pro-Israel lobby excerpted that clip and is now saying, are call, calling me stupid for asking the question. That is, again, just simply not how you win friends and influence people. Um, and so I hope that that answers your question. It's kind of a long-winded way of saying that a lot of the harm that has done has been done to the pro-Israel lobby is because of the way the pro-Israel lobby treats people when they have meaningful questions and they want to have meaningful dialogue. And that is my honest take on, on what we're seeing take place here. And so I hope that by hosting someone who is pro-Israel and having that meaningful discussion about what is and is not anti-Semitism, that it helps people understand because I think there are a lot of people who are like you who are confused and going, but, but, but this is, you know, this is one time where we would expect people to, to stand up and to say something for us when we say that people actually died. I hope that that maybe helps you look at a bigger picture and a bigger snapshot of understanding uh, how the radically pro-Israel lobby has been treating people over the last, I would say, five years. Uh, so I hope that answers your question a bit. And thank you so much for asking it because I thought that it was very sensible. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow for a brand new episode. 